Oh, hey, uh, when I was a, a small boy, I used to get into a lot of trouble around the house. If you ask my wife, Lauren, she probably says nothing's changed. I still get into a lot of trouble around the house. But I reckon it was worse when I was a kid. My, uh, my mum was visiting a little while ago and she reminded me that my brother and I got into a lot of trouble because we used to throw things. We used to throw a lot of things, apparently. My brother, Steve, he started it. As always, blame the brother, but he started it by throwing food uh, at, uh, out, of his, uh, out of his plate as a little kid. I remember that. And uh, we were both very practised at throwing tantrums. We used to throw a fair few of them. I'm not sure if you've got little kids or have had little kids. That's a pretty uh, normal thing. We used to throw a few punches as well, Stephen and I. We used to be good friends, but uh, even worse enemies. And uh, we used to throw a few punches at one another as well. And I remember if we used to get into trouble, um, if we did something really naughty, we'd not, not just get into trouble once, we'd get into trouble twice. I'm not sure if you've heard those words, just wait until your father gets home. No, they were spoken in our uh, home a few times, I can remember, and uh, for the rest of the day, we'd try to be on our best behaviour so that we wouldn't get into even more trouble when Dad got home. But an incident that is, uh, is etched into my mind uh, was uh, happened when we were in probably grade five or six. We used to uh, live right next to grandma, which was really convenient for mum. Uh, she would frequently send us next door to grandma's house because uh, we'd become too much to handle. Uh, my mum tells a story where uh, she wrote a note for grandma and gave it to me. I was too young to, to be able to read the note, but she said, go give this to grandma. And so I would toddle over to, uh, to next door through the, the, the walkway that was between the two houses and uh, I'd hand it to grandma and she would open the note and she would read this. Hi, I have been a very naughty boy. Please look after me for the next couple of hours while, while mum makes dinner. And uh, therefore, Grandma would look after us. And Grandma knew how to, uh, she was a pretty stern woman. She, grew, she um, had four sons as well as my mum on her own, so five kids. Uh, she'd lived through the Depression. She knew how to keep the house in order. But one day, uh, when I was in about grade five or six, I was with my brother in my grandma's front yard. And uh, we had uh, run out of things to throw at one another. We'd thrown balls at each other. We'd, we'd been carrying on. And uh, we looked around, what other trouble could we get up to? And there in the, uh, the centre of Grandma's lawn was this, or Grandma's garden, was this conifer tree taking pride of place. And uh, I, uh, Grandma was round the side, hanging out, washing, as, uh, as you do. And uh, so my brother and I went over to the conifer tree and it was season, it was a, this is kind of a season for fruit in this tree. And it had all these little nuts, actually looked like rocks. And so we started pulling them off and uh, we didn't decide to throw them at each other, but we did something even more foolish. And we thought it would be a really smart idea, obviously it wasn't, but a really smart idea to throw these nuts at passing cars. Ridiculous. Like, I'm so horrified that I'm even admitting this. But, uh, but we would throw these little nuts that, that kind of looked like rocks at passing cars. Fortunately, we didn't live on a super busy street. And also, fortunately, we hadn't quite learnt the laws of physics yet. So we would throw it at a car, and by the time the, the kind of rock hit where the car was, the car was well down the street. But uh, we were there <clears throat> having a lot of fun, kind of oblivious. And then just, just as I had picked up one of these nuts and was kind of in a pose, ready to fire at the coming car that I could hear come around the corner, Grandma appeared. 
She'd finished hanging out the washing. She turned around the corner. She saw me with my hand up, ready to throw. She said, put down those rocks. I was like so scared. I'd never heard my grandma as stern in that moment as I had. And uh, I I was petrified. Immediately, I realised I'd been caught red-handed. And all these, uh, these feelings of guilt, of stupidity, of shame rushed into my consciousness. And then Grandma said these immortal words, just wait till your mother and father get home. You may not have misbehaved as much as I did as a kid. Maybe you've never thrown anything at anybody else before. But I reckon all of us at one point or another have been caught red-handed in the middle of something we shouldn't have done. Maybe it's as simple as, uh, as being busted, drinking <clears throat> milk from the container once again. Or, or maybe sneaking a quick look at your phone while those important guests are around for dinner. Maybe you were caught red-handed when you received a letter with a beautiful picture of your car and a really big number uh, followed after a dollar sign. I'm not sure if you've ever received those letters. They're fun letters to get. Or, or maybe you've been busted watching something that you know that you shouldn't or caught out when you're in an inappropriate relationship. Whether it's big or small, I'm willing to say pretty much all of us have probably been caught out red-handed doing something that we shouldn't. and We've had to face the music. Today we're going to look at someone who found themselves in exactly that situation someone who found themselves caught red-handed, someone who was brought before Jesus in the middle of their sin and they expected the worst. But through their encounter with Jesus, they walked away with a very different story to tell. So now we're going to explore an encounter from the Gospel of John in chapter 8. If you've got a Bible or a digital device with a Bible app, feel free to take it out and turn with me to John chapter 8. And over the last little while, we've been doing this series called Encounter, looking at stories in the Gospels where people encounter Jesus and their lives are profoundly changed. Often in these encounters, we find this group of people called the Pharisees. These these people were the religious rulers, the upholders of the religious law, and they were responsible for protecting religious practice and maintaining the Jewish way of life. As you read through the Gospels, there are many times when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they clash with Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were threatened when large crowds gathered to listen to Jesus teach. The Pharisees were insulted when Jesus called God his Father. And the Pharisees were outraged when Jesus forgave people. And Jesus was seen to be a threat to the Jewish religion and a threat to the Pharisees' own personal power. And so they plotted for a way to remove Jesus from the picture. And it's here in this story that we're going to read today that we find the Pharisees once again plotting to take down Jesus. And this time they used someone who'd been busted, who'd been caught right in the midst of sin. Let's read from John chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. 
they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. I just want to invite you into this scene for a moment this morning. In the early morning, the people are gathered in the temple courts. There's this crowd gathered around Jesus, eager to learn from His words and listen in to His teaching. As He's talking and sharing with them, however, there's a commotion on the other side of the temple. And in March, this group of religious heavies, they're dragging this woman, almost kicking and screaming across the temple courts. And Jesus turns to them as they march towards Him. And, and as they do that, they throw this woman down in front of Jesus. The Pharisees had obviously been spying on her because they knew that the place that she was staying overnight was not her own. She'd been busted. She'd been caught red-handed, found in the midst of her lover's embrace, and her lover was not her husband. And now, ashamed, ridiculed and alone, she was made to stand in front of Jesus. I can imagine her standing there, quivering in fear, clutching at whatever they'd let her hold on to, worried about what might happen next. This woman is voiceless, not even permitted to defend herself. And here she is, dragged in front of Jesus. But the Pharisees, they didn't even really care about her. To them, she was just a pawn, someone who could be used, a means to an end. They used her sin for their own selfish purposes, to to try and trap Jesus and bring down His ministry. You can almost picture them smug in their arrogance and self-righteousness, full of pride and deceit in their hearts and menacing with their violence, rocks in hand, ready to hurl at this woman. The Pharisees thought they had it all sorted. They thought they'd developed a perfect plan to take down Jesus. See, the Jewish law was really clear on this issue. One of the Ten Commandments, the the commandments that God had given His people after He rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, was really simply and really clearly this. You shall not commit adultery. The Pharisees were right. They had caught this woman in the very act. She had broken one of the Ten Commandments. And the Pharisees were also correct in saying that the punishment for committing this sin was death. Listen to this law that the Lord also gave Moses in Leviticus chapter 20. Listen to it carefully. It says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, Both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. But the Pharisees actually don't care about justice. They've let the man go from this picture. They're just using this woman to trap Jesus. The Pharisees thought that they backed Jesus into a corner. They knew that Jesus had been preaching this gospel of grace and forgiveness, but surely He couldn't forgive a woman who'd been caught 
in the middle of breaking one of the Ten Commandments. If he forgave her, he'd be defying the Mosaic law, which would completely discredit him in front of all the believers who have listened to his teaching. But if Jesus agrees that this woman should be stoned to death, he would counteract his own message of grace and forgiveness. And not only that, he'd be challenging the prevailing law of the Romans. And they didn't give the Jews the right to hand out capital punishment like that. And so the Pharisees think that they've got Jesus cornered. He either has to forgive the woman and reject the Jewish law or condemn the woman, undermining his own ministry and rejecting the Roman authority. What would Jesus do? It's quite fascinating as John continues in chapter 8, verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Rather than choosing between these two kind of opposing options, Jesus in his wisdom finds a creative third way to deal with this situation. Rather than giving an answer immediately, Jesus bends down and begins writing on the ground. But the Pharisees are impatient. They continue to question Jesus and hound him for an answer. And then he gives them this unexpected response. Let any of you who's without sin throw the first stone. And then he returns to his writing on the ground. John doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote in the ground, on the ground. But whatever he wrote and whatever he said, the Pharisees were convicted by the truth that Jesus had exposed. They were just as sinful as this woman. They changed their hearts. One by one, they dropped their rocks and they walked away. The Pharisees had entered this scene with deceitful, self-righteous and violent hearts, yet they had had an encounter with Jesus. Their hardened hearts were softened. They were humiliated and they left, challenged, humbled and convicted. Their trap hadn't just failed, it had spectacularly backfired as they were confronted with the truth of their own sin. And so Jesus was left, still bent over, focused on the ground with the woman standing before him and the crowd still looking on. The woman knew that she'd broken the Jewish law. She understood that she'd committed a sinful act and she knew what the penalty of that sin was. But her accusers had left. There was only one person remaining, Jesus. What would he say? Well, John continues in, uh, in verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Unlike the Pharisees, the, uh, unlike the Pharisees Jesus treats this woman with respect. 
He stands back up from his position, bending over on the ground so that he can speak to her face to face. He addresses her directly. He says, woman. And then he invites her to speak. Where are your accusers? It's beautiful to see how Jesus deals with this woman caught in sin. She's obviously a sinner, but he still treats her with dignity and grace. She doesn't get what she deserves. The law says that she deserves to be stoned to death. But in this moment, Jesus gives her undeserved favour. He gives her grace. Yet with that grace, He also balances truth. Jesus doesn't shy away from addressing the sin in her life. He might not condemn her, but He doesn't accept her sinful lifestyle either. He challenges her to leave her life of sin, confronts her with the reality of her choices and highlights that these choices go against God's plan for her life. In this moment, Jesus holds the weight of both grace and truth and carefully shares both of them with this broken woman. And as he does that, her life is changed. She entered into this scene broken, accused and fearful. But through her encounter with Jesus, she leaves dignified, challenged and changed. Her life is saved. She has a hope for the future and she has a new story to tell. And this is what an encounter with Jesus' grace and truth does for us. It changes lives. But we carry the weight of the, the burden, of the shame of sin in our lives. But when we encounter and accept the grace and truth that Jesus offers, we are truly transformed. We have the opportunity to start afresh. His grace and truth are powerful. We're not entirely sure what happens with this woman. We don't know what happens in the days and weeks and months ahead. But my guess is that having had this encounter with Jesus, having her sin brought into the light, actually brought somewhat of a relief for her. And because Jesus dealt with it in grace and truth, she was changed. See, for this woman, having her sin brought out of the darkness and exposing it to light allowed Jesus to deal with it. Bringing our sin into the light enables Jesus to shine His grace and His truth on our mess and He frees us from it. Ephesians 5 says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. I remember when I was uh, 18 years of age, I'd pretty much just got my licence <clears throat> and uh, I, I must admit, I wasn't the most responsible 18-year-old. And uh, I probably had the example of my dad to follow who managed to, when he was about 19, flip his, his mother's car. And uh, he used to tell me that story and warn me to, uh, to not be as irresponsible with the car as, uh, as perhaps he was. But uh, I had this uh, job as a night filler at, uh, at my local Woolies to get me through uni. And I would start work at about 11 o'clock at night and go through till four in the morning, stacking shelves and replacing all the groceries that had been purchased during the day. 
And one, uh, one night, I, uh, I, was, I was fortunate actually to be able to have this vehicle, my mum's car, because she didn't need it. She was obviously sleeping while I was working. So I would drive up to the shops, do my, my shift and then leave. But one night, I, uh, I was reversing out of my car park and uh, I must have been going too quick or maybe I just packed too many tins of tuna. I was just half asleep. I managed to reverse the car all the way alongside one of those concrete pillars. Made a bit of a mess on the, uh, on the driver's side of the car. And I managed to, uh, to get home okay and <clears throat> it was about four o'clock in the morning and I surveyed the damage and I thought to myself, I reckon I can get away with that. The next morning I got up super early <clears throat> And my mum was, uh, was at home for the day. So I took the car back out and uh, went and bought some, uh, some white paint. <laughs> See, what had happened is that as I'd scraped alongside this concrete pillar, there'd been a couple of scrapes and there were two little lines where uh, the paint had been exposed and the bare metal of the door was showing. And so I went and bought some paint and it wasn't you know, automotive paint, it was just whatever white paint that my uh, immature and uh, uh, uncertain 18-year-old myself could buy. And uh, I started to try and cover up these marks that I'd made in the car. But the problem was it actually didn't look all that good. And so I covered it up more and more. And eventually the whole door kind of had this rough paint all over it. And I thought to myself, I reckon I could almost get away with it. So I drove home, parked the car in the garage, and then for the, next, for the rest of that week, I was like on patrol in the garage. My mum, fortunately, she's just as blind as me with the glasses. She didn't really notice. She, every time she, uh, she got in the car, she didn't say anything. And I made sure that the lights were always off in the garage. If uh, the family was home, the door was always shut. I was, uh, I was trying my best to make sure that nobody could see what I had done. And I spent the whole week stressing out over it. It, it, was, it, was, it just uh, consumed me trying to prevent people from finding out what I had done. And then uh, the weekend approached and I knew that my dad was taking the car out that weekend. And it just became too much for me. And I said to Dad, Dad, I've got a confession to make. And I went and showed him what I had done. <laughs> he looked at me foolishly. He didn't look at me foolishly. He looked at me as I was foolish and said, Tim, I can't believe what you've done. He was incredibly graceful when it came, and gracious when it came to the accident. But he said, just covering it up was so stupid. Such a dumb thing to do. But the reality was for me, when I brought that sin out into the light, it was actually incredibly freeing. Now, after I'd, uh, I'd, I'd spent all of that energy trying to hide it and cover it up, to actually bring it out into the light was so much more freeing. And Dad showed me a lot of grace and, uh, and he was really, he really forgiving for the accident that I'd, uh, I'd done. But the reality is that sin has less power when it's brought into the light. And bringing sin into the light allows Jesus to deal with it. When our, our sin is exposed, when it's confessed, Jesus' grace and truth sets us free from its burden. And we don't know what happened to this woman caught in adultery. We're not sure, but I, I, am, I, am, I could almost, well, I can't guarantee it, but I'm sure that she probably had this same revelation that her sin, which had been in the darkness, was brought into the light. And through Jesus' grace and truth dealing with it, she would have been left 
changed. The reality is we don't know what happened to her, but we do have another story in the Bible where this exact same thing happened. In hundreds of years before Jesus' time, King David committed adultery with one of his soldiers' wives, a woman named Bathsheba. She fell pregnant and David tried to cover up his sin. He tried to keep his sin in the darkness. He invited the, uh, the husband of this woman back from the front to try and cover it up. But he refused to go and stay the night with his wife and instead stayed with the other soldiers at the king's palace. David tried to cover it up, but ultimately his sin was exposed. God used the prophet Nathan to confront King David. You can read the story in 2 Samuel, but ultimately the prophet Nathan challenged David about what he had done. But ultimately David showed grace. David was shown grace by God as well. David didn't get what he deserved. His life was spared and he experienced God's grace and truth. The consequences of his sin remained. The child that David and Bathsheba had died at a young age. But God was gracious towards King David himself. And we know how David's heart was transformed by this grace. And when confronted with his sin, David actually wrote a psalm in response. And this song captures David's heart when his sin was, un- when his sin was uncovered and records the prayer that God would cleanse him from his sin. Let me just read a few verses from David's psalm. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David cried out to be washed clean of his sins, to be purified from what he had done. He was desperate to have his heart recovered and and walk more, walk once more in the joy of the Lord. And God was faithful to David. God lifted his sin from him. Like David, we all need to be cleansed from our sin, to have our sins washed away. See, the Bible speaks truth when it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just like David, just like this woman caught in adultery, we're all sinners who have to carry this guilt and shame of the stuff that we've done. We might not have all been caught in adultery, but we've all sinned. We've all messed up. We've all made mistakes and fallen short of the standard that God Himself sets. Often, no one knows the thoughts that you carry around in your head, the judgment that you might hold towards others, the, uh, the, the, the things which condemn you. Sin leaves us with this burden of guilt and condemnation and nothing the world offers can remove it. Our sin separates us from God and we can't just work harder or be nicer or love more in order to be right. 
with God. We need the grace and truth of Jesus. See, as we stand before Him, Jesus knows us and sees our lives. Our sin is laid bare before Him. But when we could face accusation, guilt and condemnation, Jesus doesn't step in like a disciplinarian and dole out punishment. Instead, Jesus steps in and sets us free from the burden, the guilt and the shame of sin. Because of what He has done on the cross, where He paid the punishment for all of humanity's sin. On the cross, He took on the weight of our sins. On the cross, Jesus created a way for us to be freed from sin. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, Therefore, there is, no now, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because He has set you free. By His death on the cross, Jesus sets you free. He sets you free from, the, from the, the burden, the shame of sin. He sets you free from eternal separation from God. He sets you free from condemnation. And through His grace and His truth, He invites you to accept forgiveness and leave the life of sin behind. This morning, we're going to do something just a little different. We're going to create some space to allow Jesus' grace and truth to dwell in our hearts this morning. We're going to make some time to encounter Jesus in perhaps a different way. Under your seats this morning, you've probably already noticed that there's a rock. I'd invite you just to to bend down and pick up that rock right now. Please don't throw it at me. (laughs) Throw it at anyone else. Just bend down and pick it up. I want you to feel this rock in your hands, to turn it over a few times, to feel its smoothness, to test its weight. And as we do that, I want to invite you to consider, to reflect on your own life right now, the circumstances that you face, the situations that you've gone through, And consider how this rock might resemble the sin, the mistakes, the pain even that you're carrying. Maybe this rock resembles a sin that you've just kept in the darkness for who knows how long. You've held on so tightly to this sin that no one can see it. No one even really knows about it. You've been carrying around this nagging guilt, but you don't want to own up to anyone, let alone God, about what you've done. This morning, Jesus wants to bring it into the light and to set you free. Or maybe the rock that you're carrying right now, that you're holding right now, isn't even big enough to really capture the weight of sin that you're carrying. You feel more like you're carrying a heavy burden of a boulder around. And it's just starting to weigh you down. And maybe it's the burden of a broken relationship, the hurt 
caused by painful words and actions or, or, or the burden of just bad decisions made in a moment of anger. You're carrying this around so significant it's weighing you down. So significant that you think that everybody notices it. And this morning, Jesus wants to take that burden away from you. Or perhaps the rock you hold in your hands this morning represents judgment that you are holding against someone. Like the Pharisees who held those rocks ready to hurl them at this woman. Perhaps you are carrying a grudge. You're harbouring unforgiveness or you're keeping someone at a distance because of the wrongs you feel they've committed against you. Jesus wants you to experience His grace this morning. I wonder what this rock represents for you. In a moment, James is going to lead us in a song, a prayer that admits that we need Jesus. And it's a song that uses those very words that David put together in Psalm 50. Asking God to create in us a clean heart, to forgive us for what we've done. And in the moment as he plays, I want to invite you to reflect on your life, the circumstances you're in, the situations you find yourself I want you to reflect on what this rock may represent. And then in your own time, I want to come and invite you to just come forward and leave your rock at the foot of the cross. Confess your sin before Jesus and allow His grace and His truth to enter into your lives. Let His forgiveness wash over you. Let His grace clean you and make you new again. For there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. James is going to lead us and I just want to invite you in your own time to come forward and just lay your sin at the foot of the cross. Spend some time in Jesus' presence. Allow His grace and truth to change you this morning.